Since late 2019, the novel coronavirus has spread across the world, sending governments scrambling for supplies. Because cloth masks were identified as an easy way to slow the spread, one unexpected group has stepped into the chaos. Crafters, armed with sewing machines and scrap fabric. Here's my coworker, Kate. So when this uh, call came out for masks, everybody kind of jumped on it to help their communities, protect their family and friends, and really just have something that they can be actively doing. This is not the first time crafters have come to the rescue during a national emergency. In this episode, we go back in time to another crisis, one that happened just over a hundred years ago. I'm talking about World War I. And while the conflict was originally shrugged off as something that would be over quickly, the war would last four years, spread to over 37 countries, and consume over 17 million lives. Today, we go into the trenches of Belgium and France and learn that one of the most important items in a soldier's kit right up there with a rifle and gas mask, was a good pair of hand-knit woolen socks. I'm Alison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. World War I is so complicated, and there are so many players that to try to explain it in a sentence or two is almost impossible. So what I'm going to give you now is basically the third grade distillation of it. On June 28, 1914, Gavrilo Princip, a Serbian nationalist, assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, Austria-Hungary ruled over the Balkan states, Bosnia, Serbia, and Herzegovina, and they wanted to strike back quickly and with force. But Russia supported Serbia, and Russia was allied with France and Britain. So Austria-Hungary needed help from their ally, Germany. Long story short, exactly one month later, on July 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. And within a week, France, Belgium, and Britain joined with Russia, and World War I began. It is safe to say that most countries involved were woefully unprepared for the war that followed. Everyone thought it would be over by Christmas. But this was a new kind of war, and death was mechanized on a scale that no one had seen. At the very beginning of the war, you had cavalry charges and bayonets. Later on, tanks took over and heavy artillery, and you had the first large-scale use of chemical warfare, poison gas. The British Empire may have spanned the globe, but its regular army was really small, maybe 250,000 men total, and half of those were overseas. Unlike the countries in Europe, Britain didn't even have a draft. They relied completely on volunteers. And this is where a key figure, both in military history and knitting history, comes along. Horatio Herbert Kitchener was a senior British Army officer, and he was appointed Secretary of State for War right at the beginning. And he looked like something out of central casting. He was born in 1850 served throughout the British Empire, and he fit the model of the starchy, straight-backed British commander right down to the cold eyes and walrus mustache. And he was also, literally, the face of the British Army. Kitchener didn't believe that the war would be quick. He was one of the very few who had the foresight to realize that they didn't have enough men. So he started a recruiting campaign. Posters appeared everywhere. You've seen the, the I Want You posters with Uncle Sam? The ones in England didn't even have the eye on them, just a picture of Kitchener pointing at the reader, demanding he join up. 
In fact, the new recruits were even referred to as Kitchener's army. In addition to recruiting troops, the other thing he did was try to get those troops properly supplied. And we're not just talking about weapons. We're talking about yards and yards of cotton and flannel and wool. To learn more about what the soldiers were wearing, I reached out to this woman. I am Tina Louise Mead, and I am the Assistant Director of Library Services at the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a soldier, maybe at a training camp, before you head to the front. You wake up in the morning, and you start to get dressed. They would start with long underwear, that they would have their uh, base layer that they would almost never take off. And then you would have a pair of wool socks and a pair of um, breeches or trousers. They would also wear a shirt, a blouse that was a pull-over-the-head blouse. Um, It was usually made of some sort of cotton wool blend flannel. Um, and they would tuck that into their breeches and then put on a tunic-style jacket, which was made of a wool. Um, The pants were also made of a wool, very similar weight to the jacket. On top of their jacket, soldiers wear a system of belts, straps, and pouches called webbing. And that system holds ammunition, grenades, a bedroll, a water canteen, a shovel or pick, bayonet, first aid kit, and a gas mask, among other items. It's a lot. Of all the different layers of fabric and gear, though, one matters the most. Socks. World War I was a new kind of war, and although the fighting is raging all over the world, the worst battles are in the muddy trenches along the Western Front. Here's Tina again. Trench warfare was devastating. You're trudging through a slit in the ground that is generously a man and a half wide. And if you poke your head up, someone's going to shoot at you. And then your only other option was to go underground. So it was either being in that trench exposed in mud or going underground where it's dark and you don't know if that next explosion is going to take that section of the trench with you and be buried alive. These trenches are the dividing line between the Allied and the Central Armies, and they stretched over 400 miles through France and Belgium. Combined, the Allied and Central Armies dig 35,000 miles of trenches along the Western Front. It's this vast network of squiggly lines etched into the countryside. Armies on both sides are digging trenches as protection from the heavy artillery fire, and they stay in those trenches for the remainder of the war. The Germans, when they dug in, they dug in to stay there. They had every intention of making this a war of attrition and taking down the French and the British. The trenches they built were actually made out of poured cement with rebar. This was the German invention just previous to the war, and they decided to take this into warfare. Whereas the British and the French much more optimistically built their trenches with wood, dug it out in the mud, lined it with wood, and the bottoms of the trenches were just mud. As the winter and spring wet season took hold, that mud became knee-deep. Due to the filthy and unsanitary conditions, disease was pretty common. Cholera, dysentery, typhoid, and trench foot. 
I had always thought that trench foot was just a nasty form of athlete's foot, but it is way worse. And that's why socks were so important. I reached out to a knitting expert to tell me a little more. Yeah, so trench foot was a serious issue at the time. Um, basically, it's just when your feet get wet and it starts to cause nerve damage in your feet. Um, it can quickly lead to gangrene. It can lead to really awful infections. A lot of times amputation would be needed either of your toes or of your feet entirely. That's Liz Criston. She's a librarian and calls herself an amateur knitting historian, which is one of the cooler titles that I can imagine. She explained why Lord Kitchener became absolutely obsessed with socks. The United Kingdom joined in early August of 1914, and on October the 1st, 1914, Lord Kitchener put out a request to Queen Mary of England, and by doing that, he's essentially extending the request to all the women of England. And he asked that they knit 300,000 collar belts and 300,000 pairs of socks before November. So within 30 days... (laughs) He was expecting there to be 300,000 each collar belts and pairs of socks to be knitted and distributed to the British forces. For all of you wondering what collar belts are, they were this wide strap of fabric that people wrapped very tightly around their chest to stave off chills. And at the time, people believed that diseases like cholera and dysentery were prevented this way. They were wrong. Socks, though, socks were indeed a pretty good way to help prevent disease if they were properly knit. And by that, I mean not made by a machine, but hand-knit, using a technique called grafting. Yes. So he emphasized over and over again that these socks cannot have any lumps. They cannot have any bumps. They can't have anything that could potentially rub on a person's foot and cause a blister. If you think of a sock as a tube, when you close the toe, you can either sew a big bumpy ridge or you can graft the stitches invisibly so there's no rubbing or discomfort whatsoever. The technique of grafting starts to be called the Kitchener stitch in about the 1920s. It becomes forever associated with him because of how many times he specifically said make he didn't know what to call it he just kept saying a lump free toe he didn't know the terminology for grafting uh, but it did come to be associated with him because of his emphasis on it and this is a key moment in knitting history the kitchener stitch protects the soldier's feet from blisters whether they were caused by the wet conditions or caused by their own boots here's tina again almost all infantry traveled by foot So they're walking long, long distances. So those boots that they would put on were leather boots, um, hobnail boots, not something that we think about much these days, but they were actually nail heads into the boots. And then also usually some sort of metal plate at the toe and the heel. Our knitting historian Liz says she has firsthand experience with these boots. My father did World War I reenacting, and so he had reproduction hobnail boots, and he asked me to wear a pair for an afternoon once. And it was extremely uncomfortable. I mean, the sole is just so hard. Like every step you take, you can feel that shock in your ankles and in your heels and in your knees. Um, So you would wear two pairs of socks just to basically function as a cushion. So really at no point during the war was wearing a single pair of lightweight socks an option. You were almost always needing two thick pairs of socks. Trench foot is such a serious problem that fighting it is not only a health issue, it's cast as a moral one as well. Here's Liz. The officers decided, this and this is in England, that the, the best way to get them to start taking trench foot seriously was to pair people up as a buddy team and require them to look after each other's feet. So 
They would tell you, like, if you get trench foot, it's because you are irresponsible. And also, your buddy is irresponsible. And you're both bad people. So change your socks. But because the war keeps expanding, just there's no way that knitters can keep up. Trenchfoot still takes an enormous toll, killing over 75,000 British troops during the course of the war. And this might seem hard to believe, but Lord Kitchener's army, Lumfrey's socks, trenches, trenchfoot, that's all at the beginning of the war. One of the key turning points came only a few months after the war started. In August and September of 1914, really early on, Germany lost the Battle of the Marne on the Western Front and won the Battle of Tannenberg on the Eastern Front. When you have an army that can simultaneously lose and win a battle in different places at the same time, you start to realize that this war is not going to end quickly. And if you're part of the British forces, all those socks from Lord Kitchener, they will not be enough to save you. But get out your darning eggs, knitters, because reinforcements are coming. We'll find out what happens after the short break. Okay, we're back. To recap, World War I is in full swing, and Lord Kitchener, Britain's Secretary of War, is begging the British people to help knit supplies for the troops. He's warning everyone that this war is going to last a lot longer than anyone expects. But no one in Britain's government wants to hear this. So by 1915, only a year into the war, he's pretty much fallen out of favor with the British government. And then in 1916, he's killed, traveling on a ship that runs into a German mine. That inspiring handlebar mustache, still plastered on walls all over England, is gone. And 1916 also sees some of the bloodiest, most futile fighting on the Western Front. In just one battle alone, the Battle of the Somme in France, well over a million men are killed, with no real gains made by either side. Soldiers at this point are exhausted, shell-shocked, and morale is low across the front. Now, up to this point, we've been talking about Britain and Germany, but haven't really mentioned the Americans. If you're not a military history buff, it might surprise you that the U.S. didn't enter the war until quite late, 1917, for a whole bunch of reasons we really don't have time to get into. But that doesn't mean that Americans are not helping out. Knitters had certainly been uh, knitting for war relief and for refugees who were in Europe, because the war, of course, started a good three years before the U.S. became involved. That's Susan Strawn, Professor Emerita of Fashion Design and Merchandising from Dominican University in Chicago. She's also the author of Knitting America, A Glorious Heritage from Warm Socks to High Art. So once the U.S. had declared war, then the Red Cross really stepped in and the Navy League. 
the Navy League called for knitting for knitted garments for sailors. The Red Cross was already an established organization, but it was small. The Red Cross was an aid group that had been founded in the U.S. back in the 1800s, 1881, by Clara Barton. And they were already a global organization, and they had started in Switzerland, which was neutral. The Red Cross was founded to deal really with public health issues. So they provided first aid, they set up nursing programs, they were really big advocates for water safety, which was a huge health problem at the time. With the war, though, the Red Cross exploded. In the U.S., they had just over 100 chapters in 1914. Four years later, in 1918, they had 4,000. Membership went from 17,000 to 20 million in that same four-year time span. If you look at the war effort, just random people in the U.S. contributed a total of $400 million in money and supplies to the Red Cross, and that's 1914 dollars. Red Cross chapters in Washington state they delivered 10,000 hand-knit sweaters to Fort Lewis. This was a training ground in Seattle. They delivered those in one week. There are accounts of school children in three different states creating 50,000 knitted and sewn garments for the war effort. And this was state by state. This was city by city. This was county by county. A tsunami of wool started flowing from the U.S. into Europe. This outpouring was well chronicled at the time. Here's Liz again, describing a February 21st, 1980 article in the Junction City Weekly, a small newspaper in Kansas. Quote, the pen might be mightier than the sword, and then again it mightn't. American women have a recipe for winning the war that's got the sword and the pen begging for mercy. They're going to Berlin by needle power, unquote. Which, I love that so much. But there was a downside to this generosity. Because originally the Red Cross, they just put out a call and said, please knit stuff for us. And they took whatever was offered. So initially, you have some really wacky stuff showing up. I've seen checkerboard sweaters. I've seen things with really loud stripes. You know, if you're all in brown and olive drab, you're going to blend in. If you're wearing a checkerboard sweater in red and green, not so much. And the other problem was distribution. So you might have people who knit way too many socks when they needed vests. Or you might have people who knit all of these mittens and what they really needed were helmets, which is what they called balaclavas. This was so much of a problem in Britain that Parliament actually convened. They called them rogue garments, meaning anything that wasn't up to spec. And both the U.S. Red Cross and Britain, they started to standardize what was knitted. Here's Susan again. People were directed to knit garments that were needed. Originally, if a woman had a, a son or a husband in the military, um, she would want to knit specifically for that person, and she might not realize what kind of garments were, were needed. So that was where the Red Cross and the Navy League came in, in understanding exactly what was needed and how to distribute it. The Red Cross even worked with knitting pattern companies to produce patterns specifically for war knitting. If you're a knitter, go to Ravelry.com and look for the modern Priscilla, home, needlework, and everyday housekeeping. It was a popular magazine at the time, and in July 1917, it published an issue full of patterns to knit for the troops. You can download and still knit those patterns today. 
Soldiers need a lot of kit, but they can only carry so much. Tina at the Pritzker Military Museum and Library explained this in harrowing terms. In addition to that uniform that they're wearing, they also had to carry a kit. And that kit increased their body weight by 60 to 90 pounds. So imagine you are running, attempting to run with 60 extra pounds, 100 extra pounds on your back, and there is barbed wire. There are mud fields that you don't know if when you step on it, it's going to stay under your foot or you're going to sink. You're trying to navigate trees that are exploding around you or falling across your path. And all the while, this extra burden bringing you down and not sure whether that next barrage is going to be gas or explosions and needing to keep all your wits about you. It's quite the challenge. In terms of clothing, this meant very organized distribution on the part of the Red Cross. And for the soldiers, it usually meant having only one of something at any time. For example, a soldier named George Courthauer wrote to his family in July 1918. We're all fitted up in new uniforms and sure have an awful pack of stuff to lug along now. And if you see Maud Kelker, thank her for the sweater and tell her I have one and that they won't allow a fellow to carry more than one. They were going to give me one and told me to turn the one in I had, but I told them I'd rather keep what I had. And they said, all right. The sweater Elizabeth Glang gave me is as good as any of the sweaters they have here and better. Even with items being strictly allocated to each soldier, American knitters still had an enormous need to fill. And if you've been listening, it should come as no surprise that socks were big. But American knitters churned out more, a lot more, than just socks. The most in demand were the stockings. If they knitted on fine enough needles, those could be, were said to be even more durable than the manufactured stockings. So those certainly were probably the most valued item. But they also knitted uh, vests just for warmth. They knitted sweaters. They knitted mufflers. They knitted what they called helmets, these caps that came up, surrounded the head and you know covered the head and also the chin and neck. That must have felt very good on a cold winter. Um, they knitted bandages. They knitted kneecaps. They knitted bands. They knitted hot water bottle covers. They knitted washcloths. They knitted hospital and bed stockings. They knitted mittens, wristlets, which left the fingers free for shooting. So what was interesting about these Red Cross patterns was that you could knit something for the Red Cross no matter your skills. A child could knit a garter stitch scarf or a washcloth, where someone with more expertise in knitting could knit the helmets and the sweaters, which required some, uh, some decreasing, increasing, and so on. And this is a good point, because while American and British knitters were enthusiastic, they weren't always the most skilled. Here's a poem written by a New Zealand infantryman. Life of a pair of socks. They are some fit. I used one for a helmet and the other for a mitt. Glad to hear you're doing your bit. But who the f*** said you can net? Harlan Richard, an American soldier writing his mother in 1918, was less pointed but still pragmatic. I haven't tried on the socks yet, but I no longer worry about sizes. I wear large shoes and a sock is a sock, regardless of size. 
So when we talk about the Red Cross and all of their efforts, we need to look at the work that they did in another way. Because they weren't just providing socks and vests, they were creating a whole body of propaganda in support of the war. Now, I know propaganda can be a dirty word, but this was knitting propaganda, the encouraging patriotic kind. The Red Cross excelled at this. Posters and flyers encouraging people to knit their bit and our boys need socks were everywhere. You can see some examples in our show notes page. Images and photos of people knitting were everywhere as well. One of my favorites is a knitting bee in Central Park in 1918. You see people crowded on benches knitting away, and they range from a young boy to an elderly woman. Two men in straw boaters and very impressive facial hair actually seem to know what they're doing, which was not always the case. A close look at photos from that time reveal that there was a whole lot of fake knitting going on in an attempt to encourage real knitting. I look at a photo of two men knitting in their hospital beds, and one seems to at least know how to hold the needles, while the other looks to be simultaneously poking his eye out and attempting to scratch an itchy chest wound. Knitting flubs aside, the Red Cross wanted to foster a sense of community. Here's Tina. One of the things that I find really fascinating about the war effort um, during World War I is that it's proof that small changes by a large number of people can make a big difference. For instance, President Wilson had sheep installed on the White House lawn. This was actually multi-purpose because those sheep eating away at the grass cut down on the manpower and labor it would take to keep the lawn. And then the sheep also produced wool. A handful of sheep can't really clothe that many soldiers. But instead, they decided to auction off that wool to benefit the Red Cross. And that made a much bigger splash and was a symbol to the nation about how all of us can do every single little bit to help with the war effort. The point is that all of these images and slogans and posters were not to guilt people into knitting stuff. It was to create a sense of connection, as Susan puts it. It was a way of engaging a largely female population, although many women had opportunities to serve in the military forces and other ways of supporting the war. But it was largely directed at women, and particularly, well, all different ages, but especially older women, uh, many who had sons or husbands in the war effort. Knitting was a very personal way of connecting with uh, the troops. Knitters would often tuck little notes into the socks or the hat or the sweaters they knit. Imagine being on the front line. You're exhausted in body and soul. You're maybe sick, maybe wounded. Every single day you're afraid. And one day the Red Cross packages arrive and you get a pair of socks from a woman, say in Nebraska, with a cheerful note inside talking about her son, who's also in service, and her saying that she prays daily that he returns to his family. From one stranger to another, I wonder, did these notes matter more than the socks in some cases? More important than these sentimental notes, though, was the giant boost American troops gave to the Allies. The U.S. joining the war made a huge difference in manpower. If you look at the numbers of what the U.S. contributed, just the sheer effort it took to take the military from 200,000 to 3 million 
over the course of two years is huge. And the manufacturing that went in to support those soldiers joining the fight is incredible. World War I ended with Germany's surrender on November 11, 1918. It's an exceedingly dark chapter of world history. Following events like the Treaty of Versailles appeased no one and helped set the stage for the next great conflict, World War II. But this war helped turn the U.S. into a global power and the Red Cross into a juggernaut of global aid, one that continues today. In fact, the work of the Red Cross was not over with the war. In late 1918, a deadly flu pandemic would begin to ravage the world and the Red Cross would be there to help. We launched this podcast on Memorial Day, not only because it fits with the theme, but because on Memorial Day, we remember and honor those who died serving our country. In World War I, American ground forces saw just 200 days of combat. But in that time, over 53,000 men were killed, 200,000 were wounded, and 63,000 died of disease, largely from those trenches. Between 1917 and 1919, the American Red Cross shipped over 370 million knitted items overseas. On this Memorial Day, we want to say thank you to all those who serve, past and present. And we want to thank the volunteer armies of makers who are always ready to stand up and help. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about today's show on our show notes page. Just look for the link in the episode description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please be sure to rate us and leave a review. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski, and Ron Doyle. Ron edited and mixed this episode. Special thanks to Scott Mayer and Ben Heyman for being the voices of our soldiers. And finally, our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.